If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Melissa Stuttered, and this is Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We're so happy that you've joined us tonight, and we invite you to also join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com. There, you can interact with other members, read their writings, post your own writings, and subscribe to the journal. Our interview tonight is with best-selling author Danny Shapiro. We'll be discussing Shapiro's writing with a focus on her exploration of self and faith through the memoir, Devotion. In addition to Devotion, Shapiro is the author of the memoir, Slow Motion, and five other novels, including Black and White and Family History. Her work has appeared in many magazines and journals, such as The New Yorker, Elle, and The New York Times Book Review, and has been widely anthologized. She's taught in writing programs at Columbia, NYU, The New School, and Wesleyan University, and she is co-founder of the Sirenland Writers Conference in Positano, Italy. Of Shapiro's devotion, Jennifer Egan states, I was on the verge of tears more than once in the course of Danny Shapiro's impeccably structured spiritual odyssey, but devotion's biggest triumph is its voice. Funny and unpretentious, concrete and earthy, appealing to skeptics and believers alike. This is a gripping, beautiful story. Hi, Danny. Welcome. Hi, Melissa. Thank you. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you. I know you're actually running around traveling right now, so um, do you want to orient us and tell us where you are and what's <laughs> <Sure>. going on? <laughs> I'm I'm in uh, L.A. Uh, where I was, uh, where I traveled from Connecticut, where I live um, at the end of last week, because there is a wonderful new literary festival that takes place in Beverly Hills, and it's called the Beverly Hills Literary Escape. Um, and I was on a panel. Um, I guess yesterday with Andre Debuse and Robert Gulrick and Andrew McCarthy uh, talking about memoir and literary betrayal and what the writer, you know, owes or doesn't owe uh, himself or herself and and his or her family and loved ones, you know, when 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 writing um, when writing one's own story that also includes other people. So it was really really interesting and fun. Um, wow, that sounds like a great panel. <laughs> it was, it was. It was the kind of panel where you forget you're on a panel. Oh, wow, that's the best. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, I want to jump in and start asking you some questions about devotion, and that is a story of a deep spiritual exploration you embarked on in your mid-40s. And what I'd like to know is what it was about this particular time in your life that prompted you to begin searching in such a focused way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when I um, when when I started realizing that I wanted to write devotion, it 
it was it came out of this time in my life where I had moved from New York City to rural Connecticut with my husband and my young son and you know after a pretty tumultuous time in my life everything really was very contented and very peaceful and uh you know work love family health you know all of it was in a good place and yet I was finding myself waking up in the middle of the night virtually every night uh at pretty much exactly three o'clock in the morning like some sort of alarm was set and and what I was feeling was well I finally realized it was like an existential crisis I was uh I, w- I was waking up into kind of a panic and this sense that I was falling and there was nothing to catch me I didn't know how to calm myself down I had this urge to pray but I hadn't prayed since I was a child raised in an orthodox family and I had kind of abandoned all that but I hadn't replaced it with anything and then so 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 here I was. I mean, I, I I've come across this quote that I write about in devotion from Carl Jung, and Carl Jung had had written, um, "Thoroughly unprepared, we take the step into the afternoon of life." And I realized that's where I was. I was I was in my mid forties. I was I was I had reached life's afternoon, and everything that I knew how to do, and in, in terms of the tools for living sort of were no longer working and it felt like I needed to find out what was missing and and it felt that what was missing was a spiritual peace. You know, um, I'm glad that you mentioned the angst and the anxiety that you were waking up with in the middle of the night because I wanted to tell you, in this really odd way, I found it comforting to read about that because I guess it, it helps people to know that we're not alone in this, that other people are experiencing it. And I was wondering, did it did it comfort you also to write the passages, and did it help you to sort of move past that angst or make sense of it in a way that may have made it more bearable, just simply to have written about it? Um, I don't think it was simply the writing about it. I think it was a couple of things, and one was, all of the exploration that went into the writing about it. But the other was, I've traveled so much and spoken to so many readers and so many audiences around the country since Devotion came out, and I started doing this thing of, if I talked about waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning, I would ask the audience uh, how many people here wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Right. And, you know, in a room, whatever the size was, in a room full of 20 people and a room full of 500 people, I would say two-thirds of the hands would go up. Wow. And, and it was just this feeling. I came to think of it as you know, wishing, you know, those, those maps of the world or maps of the United States where, uh, you know, there are sort of little red lights. Uh, um, like I, I felt like there should be like a, a map where like li- little red lights <laughs> would go on. Everywhere there was, particularly a woman, like everywhere there was a woman awake. <laughs> like, woman awake, woman awake. <laughs> because we're not alone, but it feels tremendously alone at that time it's the it's the, you know it's the darkest hour right right well thank you um i wanted to ask you from from everything that i've read of yours family is obviously central and your role as a wife and mother in particular is of paramount importance and the thing that interests me and that makes devotion unique among other books about the spiritual quest is that in this very very insistent way the role of family is intertwined with your spiritual work. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's not like you're a Buddha wandering away from the palace grounds. Mm-hmm. You're a mother, a wife, a daughter. And you're you're searching in this place that where you're independent and you're still fully committed to others. So my question is, what did it mean to you to conduct the search from within that tightly knit family unit rather than as a solo seeker? Mm. I mean, there's this beautiful word in Buddhism that uh, you know that I came across the householder, you know, and and I, I mean, I was I was definitely looking at this. And 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 conducting this search from, like, sort of deep inside my settled domestic life. You know, there there was this sense that I was doing it actually not just for myself, uh, right? But for my son, and maybe even for my husband. Although he would describe himself as an atheist, I think he he ended up getting a lot out of my, uh, you know, out of my my journey. But I I I think that as a mother it's really where it started for me because part of what I was feeling at three o'clock in the morning was I was feeling many things but one of them was uh, I'm somehow failing my son by not giving him some some aspect of what was given to me as a child I mean I I found being raised in an orthodox home very difficult, uh, in part because my parents didn't agree. Uh, my father was Orthodox, my mother was not, and they fought a lot about how to raise me. So religion was very fraught to me. But all those years later, in moments of shock or moments of pain, um, moments of um, of loss, grief, uh, he, the Hebrew words would come like flying into my mind, you know, like a flock of blackbirds. And it was sort of like I had it, you know, whether I wanted it or I didn't want it or if I wanted to reject it or I wanted to argue with it, I still had it. And that was something that I recognized as as good, um, even though it was enormously problematic for me. And the idea of not giving my son anything in the way of um, a, a spiritual life felt really not okay to me, um, and and so that. But I but when I began devotion, I thought, well, what's it going to be though? Um, <laughs> it's it's not it's not exactly uh, where I where I come from. Um, so you know, what is this book going to be? What is this? journey going to be? I mean, the journey and the book were one and the same. Right. As a writer, I write in order to figure things out for myself. And so when I started, and in order to figure out what it is that I, what I believe, uh, whether a novel or a memoir or an essay or a story. And so when I started Devotion, I didn't know how Jewish it would be or not be. I didn't know, you know, I had this long-time yoga practice, and I thought, well, how does that play into it? How does my my relationship with my parents and uh, you know that history and the the Orthodox family that I come from, you know, m- many of whom I'm still very close to, how will that play into it? I'm very I respond very strongly to Buddhist uh, text and wisdom. How will that play into it? I had no idea, um, and and so I but I think what I was doing in a way was trying to stitch together a quilt. Um, mm-hmm. To give 
to my son and to myself. Um, but 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 really, the impetus I think really did come from from motherhood in a way. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, speaking of wonderful phrases, you you said that your life was complicated by Jewishness, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I really loved that in devotion. Would you tell us a little bit about what that means? Well, that, I mean, I, I wish I could totally take credit for that phrase, but that phrase came from a really remarkable woman who I have become very close with and who I met on my search, and her name is Sylvia Borstein, and I imagine many readers and listeners uh, will know know who she is. She's a, a very well-known teacher and writer of, of Buddhism, and she also is, um, is Jewish and is... Um, uh, somewhat observant and very very knowledgeable and Sylvia told me that she that somebody once said to her uh you know so why are you complicating your buddhism with judaism buddhism is so pure <laughs> it's so simple it's so it's so straightforward why would you complicate it with your judaism and Sylvia paused and she thought and she said because i am complicated with my judaism <laughs> i have too much background in it not to be and i just thought that was so beautiful and i also thought and I've and I've really discovered this since devotion came out because I've heard from so many readers who feel complicated with wherever they come from. Like Jew, Jews don't have a lock on complication, you know. Right. I mean, I've heard from you know, I mean, God, the Catholics, you know, complicated by Catholicism, complicated by being raised Mormon, complicated by whatever it is. We're complicated by our childhoods, and our childhoods have. And and one thing I really did notice too is that that people who were raised with nothing feel complicated by that. I mean, I yeah. used to I used to sort of secretly envy people who were raised with nothing because I thought, well, then they can grow up and choose without guilt. They can just kind of go shopping for whatever they want to maybe be and not feel that they're rejecting anything. And it turns out that's not the case at all, that people who were raised with nothing have a kind of very touching longing um uh about you know just the idea that they don't have that that thing that i was describing that thing of you know those hebrew words flying into my mind you know that that feeling that in childhood they were given something even if it's something that they ended up rejecting it was something wow <laughs> okay so um i wanted to ask you about something that i noticed a lot of critics have said about your book and it's that they They've praised you for not trying to reach a conclusion in your spiritual search, and this is very brave, of course, and I agree. But I also noticed that while you didn't reach a conclusion, you did reach a balance, and it was a really important balance between tradition and exploration. Mm. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and mm. what it's to hold those two seemingly contradictory aspects of mm. spirituality equally yeah. valid? Yeah, I love that. I mean, I love what you just said, and I, I think I didn't, I never, I never expected in any way to reach conclusions or answers. And you know, and actually, some readers were bothered. You know, they read the book thinking that they were going to find answers. I think what I did arrive at, though, was a kind of philosophy, um, mm. and 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 that philosophy um, was very liberating for me. And I think that I had always felt secretly judgmental of people who stitched together, as I said before, you know, who took a little bit from here and a little bit from there 
and created a spiritual life out of a patchwork of perhaps different different religious beliefs, different texts, uh, different ideas, different practices, uh, because I had come from such an all-or-nothing place and because it felt to me that maybe that was a little bit uh, like self-serving or lazy or easy or, um, you know, that somehow not rigorous enough. And what I discovered in the years that I was writing Devotion and in the years since I wrote Devotion is that the, the thinkers, the spiritual thinkers that I have been most compelled by um, have done precisely that. They're open to all manner of of spiritual wisdom and that, in fact, forging one's own path and really deciding this is what speaks to me, these are the rituals that I can um, embrace and 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 stick with and that are that are meaningful and and these are the texts that I return to um is in fact very rigorous because it isn't not that there's I think it's wonderful when people can adhere to one uh one way of thinking and 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 simply f- and fully enter it but I think there's also um for for me at least the feeling of uh I love the work of Thomas Merton, and he was a Trappist monk. Does that mean that I don't get to have Thomas Merton? Um, <laughs> you know, do I do? Is, is he off limits to me because I'm Jewish? Um, does it make me less Jewish that I like to read Thomas Merton and that I keep a book of Buddhist wisdom open on my kitchen table? I don't think so. And you know, all of this culminated for me this year. Actually, it was my son's. My son turned 13. And um, and he had a bar mitzvah, and I could never have done what I did in in finding a path toward a bar mitzvah for my son had I not explored everything that I explored. So that you know, in the end, his his bar mitzvah took place. And I, I should say, I live in an extremely non-Jewish area, and mm-hmm. so the idea of simply jumping on something that already existed. Nothing already existed, and I kept on trying to find something that already existed, and I kept on not being able to find it, and keep. I kept thinking, well, surely if I keep looking. Finally, I realized I had to build it myself. And his bar mitzvah took place in a congregational church on a beautiful New England green. It was the first bar mitzvah that had ever taken place in this church. Um, there were many rabbis in attendance because I had become friends with a lot of rabbis, he was he was the the service was conducted by a rabbi that that and she and her her wife were were people that I had become and my family had become and my son most importantly had become very close to um he he conducted almost the entire service himself and read from the torah you know beautifully and at the same time uh a friend got up and read a coleridge poem and another friend got up and read a Hanasenish um, piece of, of, of writing. And then I sat down at the piano and my son played the ukulele and everyone sang Leonard Cohn's Broken Hallelujah. And i got to tell you, I had people coming up. I feel like that bar mitzvah was the best thing I have ever done in my life, bar none. Oh. I, I, was, I was so happy and so fulfilled by what happened that day 
And, and, and I had all of these people coming up to me afterwards, and many of them were Jewish. Many of them were sort of disenfranchised Jewish people who came up to me with tears in their eyes saying, I never knew it could be like this. And you know what, Melissa? Neither did I. I, I it was sort of like I didn't know it could be like that. And it was all of that exploring and the writing of devotion that allowed me to have the courage and and the sense of permission to say, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to figure this out. That's amazing, and you just made it so uniquely your own, while at the same time adhering to the tradition. That's, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I found myself, you know, my 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 father, who I adored, and who has been gone for more than half my life now. He died when I was young, and I found myself feeling so close to him that day, even though certainly the man who I knew and who, um, you know, who died, um, you know, way too young, would not have approved of female rabbis, would not have approved of women coming to the Torah to have, um, you know, to have aliyahs, would not have approved of a bar mitzvah taking place in a congregational church. I mean, I could go on would not have approved of the fact that the party happened before sundown, which meant technically it was still Shabbos. Um, but I liked to think that had he lived, you know, look, you change one thing and everything changes, but had he lived, uh, maybe he would have gotten to a place of understand of, of just being happy that I was doing, that I was continuing the tradition, but continuing it in my own way. Um, right. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, it has been a couple of years since devotion came out. Are you continuing the search and continuing to learn more? It sounds like you have from the story you just told. I mean, it's just it's become just simply a part of my life, and and you know, devotion is structured kind of like a puzzle. You know, there are 102 small pieces to it, and uh, people have asked why 102 and what's the significance. And really, the significance was just that's where it ended. There was no numerical you know, mystical significance, but when I finished the book, I had this, I was kind of bereft because it had been my work for those years to mm-hmm. be, to be, uh, you know, sitting in lotus position and meditating and doing my yoga practice and going to retreats when I could and allowing myself to do that because it was part of my job, you know, it was like my the writing of the the writing of the book gave me permission to do that, and right. I haven't I haven't been to a retreat since I finished devotion because I have a kid at home and I like, you know, it's very hard for all of us I think to justify, um, you know, it can feel selfish and yet it made me I think a better mother a um, a more um, centered and. Um, compassionate person, and um, you know, I, I said this in 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 one interview when the book came out. But it it's like being on an airplane, and you know, when they talk about the oxygen mask coming down, and, and if, if you're traveling with a child, you put you put yours on first, you know, so that right. you can then take care of the child. It's like that's what it felt like. But it's very difficult to do that when uh, you know, in the midst of um, lives that that all of us are living that are just really, really noisy and busy and full. But other than the retreat piece, I feel like, yeah, it it just, you know, I think once once my eyes were open to this other dimension, 
uh, and the necessity of it. You know, it sort of feels to me like it's like food or water now. It feels like it's something that sustains me, and it's also not something that is static. It's not like, okay, I finished, I wrote this book, I'm good now. <laughs> you know, I've, I've reached my, I've reached my, uh, I've got, I, I, I know now, and I'm just going to stay here. It's, it's, it's just it, it evolves, and and hopefully it, it always continues to evolve. Wonderful. Um, one of the things that I noticed in reading the book is that it seemed to me like what well, it was like your idea of what the word faith means actually underwent a transformation during that process. Does it does it mean something different to you from when you began the book? Well, yeah. I mean, I think when I began the book, I had this feeling that. I mean, to go back to my Orthodox family a little bit, the feeling that I had when I was in their midst, and, you know, these are people I really love, uh, but there was this feeling that that there was only one way to believe in God. Um, mm. And and I think that was also a throwback to my childhood, that, you know, that, that, if, if, that if I didn't believe that way, then there was no other way to believe. Um, and... Um, you know that it, that it was all or nothing, and um, and all or nothing had led me to nothing, and you know so maybe there was another way. So I think it's it's evolved in in um, I think the, the the further into a kind of spiritual exploration one goes, um, or at least for me, I don't want to generalize. For me, the feeling is uh, it, it gets more and more kind of open and inclusive. Like, for example, um, Sylvia Borstein had taught in this retreat that I went to where I first met her this meditation practice called metta, um, like loving-kindness meditation. It's a very beautiful meditation where you, you know, you sit as a practice, you, you know, you close your eyes and you um, repeat these phrases, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be strong, may I live with ease. And you very, you know, silently repeat them uh, and then eventually you, you you repeat them for other people in your life. May you be safe, may you be happy, and so forth. And then finally for, you know, you go through all these steps, and finally for all living beings, you know, may all living beings be safe, happy, et cetera. And, you know, I found myself, I've had such a very, very busy and full few years that I wouldn't be able to sit with my eyes closed and have the luxury of, you know, 45 minutes to kind of go through this practice that I loved. And I found myself one day walking in an airport, and as people were walking toward me, streaming towards me, all these travelers going from one place to another and, you know, beleaguered and tired and God knows what dramas they had going on in their life, and just thinking as each one passed me, looking at one person and just thinking, may you be safe. And then another person passed and may you be happy, may you be strong. And, you know, instantly lifted my heart, lifted my spirits, made me feel connected to all of humanity, and I wasn't sitting with my eyes closed in lotus position on my bedroom floor. Um, you know, so the idea of like practical application, or uh, you know, just the that that you can, you know, people say to me all the time, I would be a bad meditator. I'm too type A. You know, well, I'm totally type A. You know, and and or like I can't meditate because I I can't stop my mind from chattering. Well, no one can stop their mind from chattering. So I think there's like a measure of forgiveness of oneself for it not being perfect, you know, and and permission to um to 
to to explore and to you know to 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 fail and try again. Uh, you know, Samuel Beckett has this beautiful phrase. You know, uh, fail better. You know, ever fail, fail better. Um, you know, and to, and to and to allow these. You know, to allow the fact that in our humanity that we are, you know, we are com- complicated and we are flawed and um, and and you know, and that having a spiritual life isn't about like reaching some sort of pinnacle of you know. Of, of enlightenment, um, it's 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 I think just about awareness and openness and curiosity and and um, and and you know I love that 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 Buddhist phrase loving kindness. You know um, I I also really love the story that you just told because in some ways even though this sounds sort of paradoxical or contradictory, walking through the airport saying these things in your mind to people is it's more tangible, you know, than saying, Oh, I blessed everything or looking mm-hmm. at a specific person and thinking it. So it is, it's taking it out into the world with you. And yeah. but, you know, you had the foundation which was so wonderful. You, that's what you gained in your meditation. So Yeah, exactly. It's really beautiful. Um, well, we are actually about a t- out of time. We have one minute left, and I wanted to see if you have any publications or events coming up that you'd like to announce or if there's mm. a website you'd like to direct people to. Well, certainly my website, which is www.dannyshapiro.com. It's D-A-N-I Shapiro.com. Um, my new book I just uh, turned in, it'll be out in a year, and it's called Still Writing, The Pleasures and Perils of a Creative Life. Uh, but for anyone in, anyone in New York, I'm reading next week um, at a reading series downtown, and I'm just looking to see where it is and what it's called. Oh no! Oh no! Um, ah. Well, if you go on if you go on my website, uh, it will it will be on there. Um, but it's on it's next Tuesday. I think that's the the thirtieth. Um oh. and oh it's wait, I, I'm it's called um it's uh, I'm so sorry. Um oh yeah, here it is. It's called uh fiction addiction at two A. So I'll be there reading. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks and um thanks for, for talking with me today. It's been so wonderful to hear everything that you've had to say. Well, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. You have a nice flight home. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.